Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This is the Meat Eater Podcast. We're recording in in uh, Seattle, Washington, not far from my house, in a in a, in a rental house that the t-shirt magnate uh, Giannis Patelis rented for a shoot. Um, do you guys do you guys have have you ever bought one of Giannis' t-shirts? I have not. Uh, that's Randall, uh, our guest, Randall Williams. 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 Admitting to having not bought one of Giannis's Hunt to Eat t-shirts. Andy? I'm interested in these t-shirts he's got for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I just made a sale for you, Giannis. Thank you. That's that, that's my a very old... Andy, how long have we been friends? Uh, probably goes back to, what, mid-90s maybe? We've been friends almost half the time that I've been alive. Just about dead nuts half the time I've been alive. Um, Andy was like you were be- you were still becoming one, but you were the first chef I ever actually met. Yeah, besides well, like a dude who cooks fried food in a bar. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when we when our, you were when training our, to be a chef, when our paths crossed, yeah, I was just starting culinary school. Oh. Yeah, that was probably ninety six, right in there. Where was that? Ferris State. Uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So just down the road from Ferris. Yeah, I was at GV. I moved. I went to like I graduated from the third college that I enrolled in. But you were at the culinary arts program. Yeah, I was at Grand Valley for a little bit, and then switched gears and ended up at the uh, the culinary program right there in in downtown Grand Rapids. That was and fun. That was a fun time. We did the first meal thing we ever did, besides cooking steelhead or something, was when we cooked. We had a pig with a roadkill deer. <laughs> we did. And we sewed the, I believe we sewed the roadkill deer inside of a pig. Yeah. And had a, a, a party. Big old party, yeah. Wild game party. Big pig, small deer, or what? No, we were coming back. Me and my brother Matt were coming back from fishing 
in the PM. Remember the PM from Michigan? We were coming back from fishing salmon. Must have been late summer. Coming back from fishing salmon on the PM, guy in front of us hit a deer with his car. He didn't want it. We called the cops. Cops gave us. No, we never even got. I, I could, I'm sure the statute of limitations is worn out by now. Did not get a permit for the deer. Drove the deer from Baldwin down to Grand Rapids and hung it in a garage at a house we were renting. And this was a full-on flop house. I mean, none of the dudes that lived in that house were on that lease. Probably. Well, funny side note about that story <laughs> is me and Mark Schmidt were up in that same neck of the woods the, the, the same time you guys were. And we were coming home the day, the morning after that and saw that gut pile on the side of the road is that right? and, and made mention of it and then got all the way back to our house, opened the garage door and there was that deer hanging. And Bet you put we, that together. We, we pieced it together. Because oh, you knew we were up there. Yeah. Um, that's a great recipe to put a deer cut up in a pig. And I think we sold it with baling wire. God, it was 20 years ago though. Yeah. Anyhow, it's not what we were talking about. So, Giannis, Putellis, uh, of, 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 uh, plug your t-shirts, Yanni. Giannis is only compensation. Gian, Giannis gets so little, <laughs> so little out of this. Let it, let's talk. He's tell him about your t-shirts. No, this has really helped our t-shirt business. And by the time you guys listen to this, we're going to have Texas t-shirts and Montana t-shirts. So Yanni makes t-shirts hunt to eat. And, um, he had an original one that wasn't state specific. Then did Colorado, because that's his roots are in Colorado. Then now you're doing Texas. It's got a big fence on it. <laughs> it's got an eight foot fence and a corn feeder. No, I'm joking. It's made to look like the Texas flag, Texas license plate. He's coming out with Montana, doing Alaska. We've been trying to talk him into doing Jersey. <laughs> She hasn't gotten around to yet. So yeah, huntyeat.com. Go buy one of Yanni's t-shirts. The reason we're here to talk, though, Randall Williams. Now, when I was in, I went after regular college, I went to graduate school. When I was in graduate school, I took a class with, a, with an environmental historian by the name of Dan Flores. And um, if you ever want to read great history stuff, go check out Dan's books. But Dan writes a lot. Of, I mean, some of his most influential, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's one of the most cited, like when an academic does a paper, one way to gauge, like writes an article, they'll call it a paper, right? And they'll publish it. A way to gauge a paper's success is how many times it's cited, right? Right. And his thing, Bison Ecology, Bison Diplomacy, yeah, that's cited and anthologized, and it's just like a, a, that has to be like a hugely successful paper, right? Yeah, no, that's from uh, the Journal of American History, which is a really prestigious journal, and I think that was from '94, maybe, and it's been reproduced in countless anthologies. You see it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And in it, Dan Flores argues quite beautifully that the Plains Indians never had never reached equilibrium with the bison herds. And that had, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you know this way better than I do, Randall. And, and he argues, had you just introduced the firearm and the horse, you'd have had eventually had the same outcome. Yeah, I mean, the, the larger argument is, um, 
essentially that there are so many variables that go into uh, determining what the what the bison population of the plains would be that you can't simply blame this mass extinction on market hunters at the end of the 19th century because that's always been what uh, most historians have have done is to blame white market hunters the industrial hide hunt for the extinction of or the near extinction of the bison and so dan is arguing that there are larger um climactic patterns uh periods of drought on the plains that uh you know affect bison populations uh native hunters they had you know their their long-standing traditions and practices changed uh wholesale with the introduction of the horse and the firearm and so the opening of markets probably yeah the opening of markets um and indians participated in in the market hunting as well um and so essentially what his article does is it takes this story that had really been rendered into something of morality play Mm -hmm. um and and makes it uh much more complex and i think ultimately much more interesting yeah um so yeah that's that's sort of the gist of the bison piece yeah, I don't want to dwell on that. I'm just getting to Dan because yeah, I met yeah, you yeah. through Dan. Sure. But but the reason, like, I wrote about that animal, from not from an academic standpoint, but more from a popular standpoint. Um, but I became, ver- like, I, I tried to become versed in these various arguments. I think that a thing about, like, why the hide hunter thing was so dramatic is it was so complete and final that even though those guys were coming in and whittling away at was maybe just a fraction of the animals, the, the, the fashionable number for, for bison in the U.S., the fashionable number, buffalo bison is the same damn thing. The fashionable number used to be like 60 million. And that came from some really strange calculations by a guy named Ernest Seton, right? He like read about a big herd that Colonel Dodge, who's, who Dodge is, Gave the name Dodge to Dodge City. Colonel Dodge was like, I saw a big ass herd of buffalo. It took this many days to pass. It was this many miles wide. So Seton went and said, Wow, there must have been X number in that herd. He's like, There must have been, I don't know, what, whatever million animals in that herd. And they lived here. And so there's probably like six or seven or eight other areas that are that big. And so each of those areas has that many. And that became how you always heard that there were 60 million of these animals at the time of European colonization. Now the fashionable figure is you see often, maybe it's changed because it's been a few years since I've been in the game. The fashionable figure is 28 to 32 million, you know, but the thing that's weird about it is you get where by the time the hide hunters, like by the time Euro American hide hunters came on the scene and we're shooting them to put on rail cars to, to send the hides on rail cars to the east to have them tanned, there were way fewer, you know? Yeah, and it was, so, it was already a vulnerable population. Yeah, because yeah. by the end of the Civil War, that number, again, this is debatable, but, but a, a reasonable guess or a reasonable theory would be that by the end of the Civil War, you had maybe 15 million, maybe 10 million. So they've already been whacked down by a half, two-thirds, and you wound up having these pretty big substantial herds left a couple you know you'd have these eight herds of like a couple million a million and so to our eyes today it would seem like unfathomable amounts of animals in a herd and the hide hunters would roll in and they would kill thousands you know so it'd be like right now we don't have nearly as many uh 
take your pick. I want to name something, name an equivalent. We don't have nearly as many what as we did at the time of European contact. Bighorn sheep. Okay. You, so if a bunch of guys went out right now and made, did their best to shoot every bighorn sheep and they shot them pretty much all, would you later say, you know what happened to the bighorn sheep? These one assholes in 2015 shot them all. And then someone else would be like, oh no, because they were way down from all these other factors that have been playing out for the last 200 years. So it wasn't really that much of a sin because they're, they were already missing from 90% of their range from, the, from 1900 when these dudes in 2015 went and shot the rest. Does that make the sin less or more? So the hide hunters shot a lot of shit. Maybe they yeah. didn't shoot 32 million, but they mopped up what was left of like some big herds that sure were a fraction of the original, but it's still kind of like catastrophic. Yeah. And, and Dan's article basically um, highlights a whole host of factors that sort of set the stage for hide hunters to come in and just deliver the death blow. Yeah. Right. And so that's, I think it was a pretty, a pretty significant intervention and um, sort of a controversial one too, because it, it disrupts, um, you know, a lot of people like to, make the past into simple morality plays and the the bison was always this example of uh just expl- naked exploitation yep. greed native americans that. used every part of the animal right never wasted anything right complete sanctimonious you know and then evil guys came in to starve the indians yeah and and to and and to, Which is just, to, it's just i'm sorry it's just not true right and but and to acknowledge all these other factors that led to this catastrophe isn't to absolve hide hunters of any blame right it's not no. to sort of wipe this they slate. had no yeah, idea right? dude they were, unedu- right, exactly. they were uneducated guys <laughs> yeah. they were uneducated guys who were 19 20 years old yeah and they even though i would have been a hide hunter right like there's no way <laughs> the same way like when i was in my early 20s i moved out to montana because i wanted to hunt and fish remove any aspect of of any any uh, idea about history, any idea about education, and I was grew up on a farm in Michigan with no phone, no internet, no nothing, turned 20 years old, you can make money hunting buffalo, you go out and hunt buffalo, you have no idea what you're engaged in. Right. You might get it on some like, it wasn't like an evil thing. This is the last thing I'm going to say about it, but later, Hornaday, who collected specimens for the Smithsonian, later he went to Miles City trying to find he wanted to shoot a couple of buffalo for the Smithsonian. They knew they were going to be gone. No, the Museum of Natural History, sorry. I can't remember, was, I can't remember which one it was. Anyways, some, they wanted some collections. They wanted some pristine mounts before the animals were completely gone. He went out to Miles City. It was in the eight, in late 1880s, I think. And he commented that in Miles City, the ranchers around there mostly came to that area because they were hide hunters. And they stuck around because they were convinced after they'd shot them all that there must be more somewhere and they're just going to hang tight till they show up. And then a few years went by and they all got into cattle ranching. They didn't even know what they had done. There was rumors about a bunch in Canada. Millions would come from Canada. They weren't like, we got them all. Good job, boys. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just the scale of that, that destruction is sort of unimaginable to us today. But, and so how could we even expect any of these guys running around uh, to have any idea what they're doing. I bet you illiteracy, illiteracy, and I'm not saying like it's a slam, illiteracy was probably rampant among the hide hunters, and there was probably very little education among the hide hunters. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. 
Man, between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never ending. I'm talking about the, the, the subscriptions, the monthly dings on your credit card. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. Meaning, you know, like, let's say there's like a show that comes out and you want to watch it and you wind up doing like this free trial and you forget about it. And then two years later, you realize you're paying those hosers 12 bucks a month for something you don't use. It finds that stuff, cancels it. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. They were, if you factor in where those guys are mostly from and where they wound up, and you do some kind of calculation in your head about communication and stuff, it would be like if you sent kids from here, from 
current day rural America to Kazakhstan and told them that shoot that thing and we will pay you to shoot it. Yeah, I mean, it's and a- then to them be like, oh, dude, you didn't realize that the population's in Kazakhstan? It's like, it would mean nothing to them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, I mean it's a, it was a lucrative business. You know, uh, you could make a lot of money just running around, rolling over bison, skinning them out, hire skinners. Three, four, five bucks a piece. Yeah, throw, throw them on a train. A hide and, was and worth and then, and then even still, it's not as if they're just doing this um, in a vacuum, right? The, the leather from these hides are, are going onto factory belts in Chicago and New York. And it's fueling the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Um, to some degree. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, they're, they're part of, a, they're, they're cogs in a much larger uh, process. And, and to place, you know, some sort of burden of guilt on them is, yeah. uh, I don't know, it's, it's not a very intellectually serious exercise. So They were filthy. They were filthy. They were filthy. <laughs> no, but I, I only bring up Dan, the, the historian Dan Flores because Dan Flores uh, contacted me and said, that I should speak to you about your dissertation, which I'm going to have you explain. But first, what is explain for the listeners, like, what is the dissertation? You just finished your PhD? I did. Yeah, I just My finished. My brother has one of those. He says, it's, he, says, he says he has two. And one of them stands for pretty huge. Uh-huh. Um, fill in the blank. But... Okay, explain what a dissertation is like. Well, how how that all, how that whole thing plays out? Yeah, so the dissertation is uh, the final step um, on the road to a doctoral degree, um, and so and you did your you did your doctoral work under Dan Flores. Yeah, so Dan was my Dan was my doctoral advisor, um, and I studied history at the University of Montana, environmental history. Um, and explain that real quick. Environmental history? Yeah, it's like in a nutshell. Yeah, um, environmental historians are uh, interested in questions uh, pertaining to how humans in the past have interacted with the environment and how human behavior has shaped the environment and also, in turn, how the environment has shaped human behavior. Um, And so it's a pretty, it's a relatively recent uh, subfield, and it really came about in the 70s. Dan was one of the, I mean, there have always been intellectuals concerned with these questions, but in terms of sort of a professional subfield within history, um, environmental history came about uh, really in the 70s as environmental concern became a, a large part of American life. And Some American heavy hitters politics. in the field would be like Cronin, right? Cronin, yeah. Cronin, is a, he's got a couple classic works. Um, Who's the guy that did the thing about the death of the frontier? Um, like who wrote the thing declaring the frontier was dead in whatever year? Turner. Turner, yeah. yeah. But Turner yeah. wasn't an environmental historian. No, no. Turner Turner was a Western historian. Um, Frederick Jackson Frederick Turner? Jackson yeah. Turner, yeah. Yeah, Turner had this idea that he would look at the census data, right? Right. And one day found out that on the census report, things were in the U.S. were so lowly or so unpopulated that they would be called the frontier and then one day a census came in and they realized there is no frontier anymore right and he had this and then was it cronin that then kind of interpreted that later well yeah i mean almost all of western history it said is is sort of produced in conversation with turner um and is that right? it, yeah i mean turner, the history of the american west uh, history of the american west yeah. and, and and there's this long-standing debate about whether the west is a process or a place um and so 
Turner is really arguing that the Western, the West is a process, right? It's a process of frontier settlement. It's a process of sort of rendering wilderness into civilization. And that's, that's sort of Turner's thesis. And he's, he's writing at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and he's, he's looking at this census data and saying, well, once we as Americans run out of uh, trees to cut down or, or sort right, of bison to shoot, bison to shoot right? Um, native peoples to fight. Um, what's, what effect is that going to have on uh, the American people? Because he is really attributing a lot of the distinctive characteristics of uh, American civilization to this process of, of westering or of, of sort of yeah. frontier settlement. Um, and so he's tracing... Um, you know the the democrat the origins of americans of america's democratic political culture to all of this avail quote unquote available land right yeah um and so western historians of the american west or western historians sort of interchangeable there um throughout the 20th century have been trying to re- because turner was so influential um western historians have been wrestling with this question of um is the west a process is it a place i think environmental historians would argue that the west is a place and that it's defined by um aridity uh there are certain you know certain key characteristics environmental characteristics and also characteristics related to its political organization you know the federal government is really uh, inescapable in the West, whereas in the East, uh, a lot of issues of governance are resolved at a municipal or a state level. Yeah. Whereas, in the, you know, you look at uh, land ownership rates in yeah, the West. You, you can live in a state that's 79, 80% federally owned land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so so this is, you know, not to get into the, 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 the minutia of the historiography in Western history, but basically there's this longstanding debate place, process, how do we define the West? If you say that you're interested in the American West and that's what you study, how do you define that? Um, Is Alaska part of the West? Is Hawaii part of the West? Yes, no. (laughs) Am I right? Uh, well, it's it's you know this is this is what academics do is you just come up with well, new, I just, I just new and it. inventive questions to all these. I just new, answered it. Yes. Yeah. No. Well, yeah. Um, I just got back from Hawaii. Yeah. I, I don't want to get into that, no, but no. I'd love to hear someone sure. tell me what tell me like the pros and cons of calling it the West. So <laughs> now you did your dissertation, which is like your final, the final, like it's it's the final. I, I want to take. I want to go way back for people who have who haven't dabbled around in college that much. Sure. Like when you go to college, you go to regular college, right? You get your four years. Then you probably did some kind of graduate degree, which took you two or three years. Well, I went straight from. Uh, so I did my undergraduate degree uh, in Chicago, and then I came out to the University of Montana. I was I was admitted directly into the doctoral program. And how so, many years did that take you? Uh, five years. And how many years did you spend working on what would become your dissertation the whole time? The whole time, yeah. I sort of, it began, I mean, it's evolved over time, but it began in that first semester of graduate oh, okay. school. So it's, um, it's like it turned into a five-year project. Yeah, essentially. So I did two years of coursework, um, seminars, this and that. And then um, the next step is your comprehensive exam. So you come up with a list of the essential books in a, in a number of fields. So I did four fields um, and you... Each of those lists is about a hundred books. So you you read, you know, I read about four hundred books, and you sit down and have a conversation with your advisors, and they, you know, or you'll hear them called oral books, uh, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, skimmed quite a few of them, uh, but read strategically. So you got kids? 
I don't. Man, that shit goes down the tube when you have kids, man. <laughs> well, I used to read like, I don't even want to start talking about that. I love them. I love them. Yeah. But the first thing that goes is the ability to read books. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's uh, there's not a whole lot of glamour to uh, graduate school or uh you know graduate studies in the humanities but the the sort of the undeniable luxury of it all is that you know people expect you to read a lot and uh if that's something that that you like doing which is what drawn what drew me to it um you're expected to read a lot and you have that time available so yeah, when, I was, when i went to graduate school mm-hmm. all we did was read man yeah yeah so uh that's all i did yeah um, the, the amount of work you had to do for that especially i was in fine arts yeah like writing so like basically, basically, it was like you could have summed it up by saying, "Just go read for two years," and yeah. Then, and then if you can, if you got time, write something. Yeah. No. So that's <laughs> what. Yeah. I mean, we. I did reading. You know, the first two years are reading seminars and writing seminars. So in a reading seminar, you might read ten books a term, and then in a writing seminar, you're expected to produce an article length paper. Um, and then after two years of that, you're sort of sent off to prepare for your exams and essentially master these fields. Um, and then once you pass your exams, then you move on to the dissertation phase where you're actually um, writing. And what a dissertation is, is it's a book-length uh, piece of writing that is expected or, or must make an original contribution to uh, the literature. So you have to either engage with a new body of sources or engage with new questions or or um apply you know a new line of thinking to an old question something along those lines so you have to do something original um and basically it's sort of can you can you uh do you have the talent do you have the uh, requisite knowledge to be a practicing historian and so it's a it's a, a process of professionalization essentially now because there's probably some dudes sitting out there feeling like they tuned into the wrong yeah. thing because they're trying to listen to a hunting yeah. fishing podcast. Reveal, for me, what's the name of your dissertation? So the name of my dissertation is Green Voters, Gun Voters, Hunting and Politics in Modern America. Oh, man, that's rich. <laughs> um, that's what I want to talk about. But before we get into that, uh, give, give me a quick, if you had to do, what's your hunting and fishing background? My hunting and fishing background, I grew up in outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, grew up fishing and a group of friends and I in high school decided we want to get into hunting and, uh, none of our, like your dads didn't hunt? None of our dads hunted. Well, one of, one of our friends, (laughs) they just didn't grow up in a hunting family. So we sort of, so you were like a self-taught guy? Essentially. I mean, we, we read a lot of magazines. We watched a lot of shows. One of my buddies, my best friend, uh, his dad did hunt. But he, you know, his dad didn't take us all out hunting, right? So we sort of figured it out on our own. And it's, you know, it's a different ball game in outside of Cincinnati because you're sort of setting up a tree. We we got into whitetail hunting, so it's find a game trail, set up a tree stand, sit, wait, sit, wait. You guys didn't throw down a sack of carrots or anything? No, we do. Couldn't in Ohio. Oh, really? But uh, yeah, no. So so we got into it in high school, and we, you know, growing up, we we lived by the little Miami river and would run around setting trot lines and fishing all summer. That right? And that was our, I mean, that was our big thing. And so we're thinking, yeah, you know, we should become hunters. And so we, uh, so that's, I mean, that sort of led me to the project in some respects is, is these, what my source base for this project is pretty much just 
field and stream, outdoor life, uh, local hunting and fishing columns. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of how I was introduced to the sport primarily. Um, and we did a lot of figuring out on our own, but, um, these magazines have always been sort of a source of fascination for me. And also coming from a non-hunting family, um, you know, in some respects you feel like an observer, right? Um, and so, so anyway, that's, that's sort of my background. And now I'm out in Montana and, uh, I've the past, I just finished the the doctorate, but, uh, past six years, you know, I was out, I was in Alaska prior to going to Montana and sort of split my time between guiding fishing in Alaska in the summer and then run back to Montana for the academic calendar. So it's been, it's been a pretty good, uh, Pretty good life so far, yeah. Where were you guiding up there? <laughs> uh, South Central Alaska, about 90, 100 miles northwest of Anchorage, yeah. an area called Lake Creek. Doing for what? Uh, salmon and trout. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, people come out, do fly-out trips for the week or for out the day. Out of a lodge or floating? Uh, out of a lodge, so yeah. we're just running jet sleds around and good times. Nice. Yeah. All right, so break, break, down, break down your research. Like, how, what'd you look at? So... I look primarily at, um, like I said, field and stream, outdoor life, nationally circulated hunting magazines. Fur was, fishing game? Uh, I didn't you do fur fishing oh, game. No. I know, I know fur, <laughs> fur fishing game. At some point, you have to put the blinders on and just say, I, I, I think I've got what I need here. And, and you can always so the you know, big, bring in the big venerables, though, like yeah. films, so field and stream, outdoor life, sports, sports field. Sports of field, the big three, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't do so much with sports of field. Um, but I also, I, uh, what I'm what I'm looking at in the dissertation is hunting's change, hunting's transforming or evolving or changing public culture from the end of World War II up until about the 1990s, and so I looked for any place where hunters are sort of publicly celebrating or articulating, rationalizing, uh, explaining what they do, what it means to them, uh, how they see themselves as hunters, how they identify and understand themselves and what they're doing. Um, and also where they sort of butt up against the non-hunting public and how they uh, define themselves in relation to uh, non-hunters, anti-hunters, et cetera. Um, and so, so... So focusing on the friction, not internal friction, but the friction, betr- or, the friction or, or lubrication or whatever yeah. between people who hunt and people who don't, or like the broader culture. Yeah. I, I, not like conflict within the hunting world about... Where do we feel? What? How do we feel about? No, and I, I do look at I do look at that as well. Um, I look at you know how you know you see it you know you see it in today's you know letters to the editor this and that you know somebody says we as sportsmen should do this we as sportsmen should uh, be on this page yeah um, and and there is conflict within these ranks. So what I'm looking at is how hunters have um, identified over the course of about 50 years, how they've identified in relation to one another and in relation to the non-hunting public. Gotcha. Um, and, and it's sort of a, a mutually constitutive process in that, you know, they're not, they're not in a vacuum. Uh, they're, they're defining themselves in relation to a changing world around them. Um, and they're, but, but they're not just sort of uh, um, blank slates either. Right, if that makes sense. So some of the some of the changing public culture comes from within, and some of it is in um, in response to outside forces as well. So tell me, like, you guys hate generalizations and stuff like that. I know. Tell me something. <laughs> like, tell me something that was. Tell me something that would surprise me. That um, you found out, or like, what what in the end wound up being like? What's the what? Right. Well. So. 
there, there, there are five chapters to the thing. There's five chapters in an epilogue, and they're all, um, they all sort of track a different story. Okay. Throughout about a fifty-year span, so it's not written chronologically. I got you. Um, and what might interest you the most? One of the chapters is no. It, I, I, what yeah. interests right now? What interests me the most is one of the five chapters. Oh, so the first one. So the first chapter looks at um, hunters and environmental politics from about 1945 to the mid 1970s. And what I do in that is there's there's sort of this old. Uh, paradigm of you know we have conservationists from turn of the century and we have and this is what a sort of an academic historian would tell you there are conservationists and they're properly modern environmentalists Mm -hmm. and there's this moment of rupture whereas you know at the turn of the century you have guys like Gifford Pinchot, Teddy Roosevelt, um, all these you know stalwart heroes of conservation um, and and they are really dominating environmental policy making in this period and then in the post-war period a new set of actors steps in with a new set of values and they uh are the the driving force behind some of the landmark legislation in the 60s and 70s yeah yeah um and so what i try to do in that first chapter is basically say that there's much more continuity than that and that it, it makes for an easy story to tell if you say you know hunters did had did this at the turn of the century and then non-hunters had their their moment in the 60s and 70s and i'm saying no look if you look through the 1940s 50s 60s and 70s uh hunters remain a powerful engaged uh political block that are really driving policy making at, at a local and uh federal level um throughout this period so i'm looking at the ways in which these magazines are so it wasn't yeah. like the counterculture spawned what? this sudden group of environmentalists who went out and like rewrote the books. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if I were to sort of oversimplify what uh, most historians, I'm not asking you to do that. But, but I think that's a, that's a good way of sort of summing up or simplifying what a lot of historians who haven't looked at this stuff would tell you is that there's sort of a counterculture, a new set of values in the sixties and seventies that's really responsible for, the environmental legislation and policies that have given us the world that we live in today, essentially. Um, and that their values and their issues and um, issues of concern supplanted these older uh, issues of concern that guys like Roosevelt are and concerned with. what caused with. that viewpoint? In the, among historians? Yeah, yeah like why do yeah. people think that that happened? Well, I think that, I mean, I think that in part it, it comes from, you know, a lot of environment, a lot of historians, a lot of academics in general um, study things that they're interested in and concerned, concerned with or concerned about. Um, and so a lot of the initial scholarship on this subject was written by people who came of age from in the generation. 60s and 70s. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of how Dan got into environmental but history. But that's the criticism of that generation is how egocentric that generation was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so this, but this is how history is written is that, yeah. you know, uh, there's, there's, there's sort of a thesis. One group puts out a thesis, they put out an argument and then other people come revisit that and say, you know, things might've been oversimplified here. They might've been overlooked. And sort of the initial group that makes sense of things and periodizes things and says, this is, you know, environment, modern, quote unquote, modern environmentalists are this, they're X, Y, and Z, they believe A, B, and C. Um, that's how they make sense of the past and of, of a really messy reality. Yeah. And, and so they come in and do that initial work. And then what I'm trying to do in my project is say, 
you've you've overlooked um, a much more uh, you know complex reality. You've you've overlooked um, stories that might make it a little more difficult to to uh, make sense of what happened in the sixties and seventies, where we get you know the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, things like that, um, the National Environmental Protection Act, the Endangered Species Act. Um, so, so that's sort of what my project is. So that's the, that's the first chapter is, is trying to write sort of a counter narrative of the 20th century environmental movement through the eyes of field and stream readers, outdoor life readers. Um, what's chapter two, chapter two, chapter two looks at the emergence of anti-hunting sentiment, uh, in the 1970s and the ways in which anti-hunting advocates, try to harness their own agenda to some of these powerful new environmental laws and how this dynamic reshapes the way that a lot of hunters perceive these laws. Um, let, let, me, let me back up for a minute. What, what did an, what, when did the word, were there anti-hunters in 1940? I mean, of course they were, yeah, but what well, were they? Like Bambi, what were, Bambi's in 1942. Really? Right. So, um, but Bambi isn't, yeah. I mean, Bambi is 1942. One of the things that I that I do with this is, I, and and opposition to hunting goes back further than that. Um, yeah, I mean, you ever read the Old Testament? Yeah, Jacob and Esau. Right. Yeah, and and so this is, I mean, there there's a huge literature out here, but one of the there's an f- interesting book. I don't know if you've read it, Daniel Justin Herman's Hunting in the American Imagination. No, no. And no, one no. of his arguments know. is that. Um, Sort of the early Puritans, actually, if they knew that, you know, what would become, who would become uh, Americans were a, a people that prided themselves on their hunting culture, um, the Puritans would have been uh, really dismayed by that because they, hunting is something that you do when you're not working and you should always be working. And it's oh, something, right? yeah, and so, yeah, and so one of his arguments is that sort of early, that hunting occupied a different place in the American imagination in colonial times. And what his book does is sort of trace that through. Uh, once, once the United States is created, then you need some American heroes and, and heroes that differentiate your culture from that of Europe. And so Americans embrace sort of the Daniel Boone types. Yeah. Right. And so that's a really interesting book. I'm, you'd really enjoy that one. But, uh, but anyway, um, there's always been sort of, you know, hunting has, has occupied different places in the American imagination over time. And what my project does is sort of track that through the 20th century. So to get back to the, the question of anti-hunting sentiment, um, there's opposition to hunting that arises in, in the 19th century. Um, the SPCA and some of these anti-animal cruelty groups. Or they, they were organized then. Yeah, and their, their, primary, their primary consideration in the 19th century was really sort of cruelty to horses because they're, they're urban-based reformers who are looking at these horses out in New York City, get, in London, getting whipped, getting knocked around in the street, underfed horses just being put to work, right? And so that's really where this idea of animal cruelty um, comes comes into uh, more widespread, I guess. Uh, uh, it carries it carries more clout among a wider public. Um, and so, really, in the in the late '60s and early '70s is when this stuff comes to a head. When you when you when there became like an anti-hunting movement. Yeah. 1960s, 1970s. Yeah, um, a, a movement, yeah. Um, there, there are a number of groups founded in the mid-60s. Um, and, and one of the reasons for this, and this is what I look at in, 
in this chapter is that um, some of these laws that are created in the 60s and 70s to, uh, for purposes unrelated to the anti-hunting agenda are very quickly uh, embraced by anti-hunting advocates in order to uh, secure their own uh, desired outcomes, right? And so- Give me an example. Um, ESA so, protection. ESA protection, yeah, that's, that's a good one. I mean, the one that I really focus on in this, uh, in this chapter is the National Environmental Protection Act of 1969, um, which is signed into law in 1970. And people know uh, NEPA as it's known because it requires environmental impact statements, right? And so if, if the federal government is going to do something or fund something, it requires that, that experts come in and assess what impact this action is going to have on the environment. Yeah. Right. And this is something that if you look back at the pages of Field and Stream and Out Through Life, one of the more interesting things that I found was that in 1944 or 45, the uh, editor of, I believe it was Arthur Graham, who's the editor of Outdoor Life at the time, is calling for this, almost this exact law. Because, but he's worried about um, channelization and the construction of huge dams in the post-war era. You kidding me? And so he's writing. Yeah, what year? And this is like in 1944, 45. Prophetic, and, man. Yeah, and so the. I mean, this is this is what really fascinates me is you can go back into these magazines and this is an issue that's still selling war bonds, right? And he's he's calling for a law, and he. I mean, he uses the words. You know, we need a a, a, a coordinating law with sharp teeth that will hold government officials accountable for what they do to the natural world. Did he lose his job? No. Was I mean, it like a big, people, someone tried to start a big boycott? People were on board with this stuff. And what I think is, I mean, what I think is interesting is if you look at these magazines through the, through the 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, a lot of the, a lot of the things that they're calling for, you would associate with sort of cutting edge avant-garde environmentalism you know, if you consider them in context. Yeah, no, for right? sure, man. The it, fact that someone would have been talking about that then. Yeah, and and he's he's writing in 44, 45. This law isn't, isn't signed. It's signed by President Nixon in 1970. And and it's still, you know, at the time of its of its uh, signing, it's it's still held as, you know, the, the largest achievement of the crowning achievement of the environmental movement, right? And if you think about what, what environmental impact statements require, sort of incorporating a new a new set of values into the policy making process like yeah. it's a big deal and he's calling for it in 44 45 and when so, it came around the anti-hunters and the hunters yeah saw so some gain or had the hunters lost interest in it by the 70s no they were they they were still using it um and and using targeted litigation to pursue their own ends right to pers to pursue um they used it a lot. Uh, different sportsmen's groups used environmental impact statements to challenge um, resource extraction, uh, channelization of waterways, things like that. Um, and and it's it's very much celebrated in the pages of these magazines when this law is is enacted. Um, but very quickly, what you see are that anti-hunting groups are using uh, lawsuits and making claims under, under NEPA, they're saying the environmental impact statement for uh, this hunting season didn't consider this alternative. And essentially what an environmental impact statement does is it asks that somebody sit down and say, if we do A, you know, one, two, three will happen. If we do B, four, five, six will happen. And so it's yeah. sort of this systematic accounting of what might happen through these various policies. So they run an environmental impact statement on a proposed hunting season? 
that's well that's what they that's what the anti-hunting activists demanded that they do in the 1960s or in the 1970s oh, um and they start challenging just try to make it onerous yeah, try to make yeah. it difficult so to you make, slow make things down seasons, right yeah. you slow things down and um and sort of the the real fear and you see this in the magazine some of these some of these writers are saying well if they challenge Pittman robertson uh with the Pittman robertson act of 1937 which is the act that places an excise tax on firearms and sporting equipment et cetera et cetera that funds much of the wildlife management in this country um the fear yeah, is that, research habitat yeah, improvement all that stuff yeah. right i mean it's it's responsible for the sort of miraculous recovery of all the wild game species in this country between 1930 and, and 1970 when we're talking about i mean uh in 1930 there's like half a million deer in 1970 there's 14 million in 1930, there's uh, like just one, a handful like of antelope. Two turkeys, one, one, yeah, pre- one right. pregnant Tur- turkey. <laughs> turkeys are a great example. Antelope uh, populations increase like something like 14 times in yeah. in this period of 40 years. So um, it's really a Pittman Robertson and and these funding structures that are built around this model of consumptive use and hunting. Um, that's sort of the backbone of of wildlife management in this country. Um, and hunters, you know, hunters today will will tell you that with great pride, right? You see that all the time. Um, and and actually, the fear among a lot of these writers in the '70s is that Pittman Robertson will be challenged under uh, NEPA, and and it actually is. There are lawsuits filed, and there's a lot of sort of behind the scenes wrangling. Um, but but there are wildlife uh, wildlife officials, um, you know, government administrators. Like, uh, hold on. That they're saying you should do an environmental impact yeah. statement on the Pittman on Robertson. Pittman Robertson, and what they're asking for um, is that there would have to be an accounting for every single thing that Pittman Robertson dollars do, which oh. is just uh, yeah. totally unmanageable. So you want to put in like a water tank somewhere, and you'd have to right, exactly. Yeah. You'd have to exactly, and so this is the this is really a moment of crisis. Um, and you'll see, you know, if you go back and read through these magazines, you can see this all unfolding. Um, and so, so in this chapter, I look at the way, you know, when anti-hunters harness environmental laws to their own agenda, it changes the ways in which hunters perceive environmental laws. And so this is one of, you know, one of the questions that like I... Like why so many hunters now seem like burdened or annoyed by the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, and and they're I mean they're all the Endangered Species Act is used um, a lot by anti-hunters as sort of a marketing tool essentially. I mean, it has great cultural cachet in the 1970s. Um, you know, people have lunch boxes and stuff with charismatic megafauna, and and politicians are going out waving. You know, I, when the environmental spe- or when the Endangered Species Act is passed, it's wildly popular. It's a wildly popular piece of legislation at a moment in which. Uh, faith in government is declining precipitously, yeah. right? In the in the early mid 1970s, and so this is one that lawmakers really hang their hat on. We're doing what the people want, um, but very quickly, endanger or very quickly, anti-hunting advocates use claims revolving, you know, using this language. They're deploying this language of endangered species to target hunters and blame hunters for environmental degradation. Gotcha, and so. Again, enda- the the concept of endangered species is sort of weaponized, um, and 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 in a large part, what this chapter does is explores the polarization that we see between inv- 
people who identify as environmentalists and people who identify as, as hunters. Yeah. And I know this is a gross, you know, oversimplification of, of who hunters are today, right? But I think if you, if you talk to a lot of people, the words environmentalists and hunters, they're not often... Used no, but together, that's why we use right? the word. That's why. That's right. why I say I'm a conservationist. Exactly, which is a loaded term. You don't want the e I word. I use it too. I, yeah. I always say conservationist, but now and then, I just also say. Yeah, I'll just say like, well, no, I'm an environmentalist. You know. Yeah. So like, up no, until I, I some point, up. up until some point in the '70s, hunters said, "I'm an environmentalist." But they weren't using. When did people start they, even well, using that term? They were using. A lot of them were using. Um, the terms interchangeably, right? Conserv- it's not as if conserv- the term conservationist all of a sudden supplanted the, mm. the term environmentalist in these magazines in the 1970s. But um, one of the interesting things that you'll see is in the 60s and 70s, you'll see articles saying, you know, covering uh, the, the development of outdoor education programs at colleges and taking sort of these long-haired hippie types into the woods and t- teaching them about, you know, camping and hiking and this and that and the readers of these magazines are saying this is great we need these people on our side was that right oh yeah god that rings a bell just republish all those articles now (laughs) yeah no and so this is i mean it sort of echoes to or you know contemporary development sort of echo what i see in these sources from from 40 years ago that's amazing all right three chapter three chapter three um chapter three are we cool to leave chapter two for a minute yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Unless you, like, you feel like we missed the point. No, no. I mean, that's that's sort of what I'm doing. That's sort of what I what I look at is is um, this this polarization and the changing politics of the word sort of environmentalism in the hunting community. Um, now, if you really want to act like you're pissed off at someone, like you'd be like a tree hugger, right? You know, but dude, I'm prone to hug a tree now and then, man. Yeah. Um, especially if I'm trying to climb it. But, you know, I want to tell you something real quick. The, the, the one note I had ahead of talking to you is to tell you this story. When I, I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 1992. Okay. I grew up in Western Michigan. In 1991 or 1992, I can't remember, me and the guys I hung out with, largely as a joke, but kind of not, we started a group called Hate. Hunters Against Teenage Environmentalists. <laughs> and we had t-shirts and wild game dinners, and we did like a fundraise, a canned goods drive uh-huh. as a fundraiser. Yeah. Because we had never even heard the word environmentalist. Then all of a sudden, it was there, and we thought that, like, we were under the impression that an environmentalist, that that meant anti-hunter. Yeah. and Because there was a school group, these kids in school who were into charismatic megaphone and dolphins and stuff had a very strong anti-hunting bent started like an environmental group but all they talked about was anti-hunting like because in their mind that's what the debate was mm-hmm. right their mind was like pitted a bit like oh yeah you're an environmentalist oh i hate hunting too right, right. was their tone okay? right many years ago so we started hate we had t-shirts that said hate and off it was hunters against teenage environmentalists. Like I said, it was a joke. We'd have wild gate dinners. Yeah. And like, it was only years later that I realized that that's not what that meant. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think this is, that's a pretty common misconception. I think a lot of people associate the term environmentalist with the politics of anti-hunting. One of my buddies from hate just got hold of me and sent me, I'd <laughs> lost my t-shirt. He sent me his old t-shirt. Oh, nice. Which I hung in my closet in a safe place. <laughs> 
My wife's like, best not to share that one on social media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, explain chapter three to me. Um, chapter three looks They don't at, get less interesting, do they? Um, no. That's a writer's mistake, man, to put all the good stuff in the front, you know? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I sort of, I wrote it backwards. So I wrote the first chapter last. Okay. And uh, it was a sprint to the finish, so I was just kind of hammering it out. But um, yeah, uh, chapter three looks at uh, gun control and the politics of gun control in the pages of these magazines and how that conversation changes over time. When did the conversation start? Um, in a way that we'd recognize it today. The, the, yeah, I think the, the, the origins of the modern Second Amendment debate are in the 1960s. Um, and and 1968 is is the gun control act of 1968 is sort of the 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 foundational piece of the modern regulatory uh framework gotcha right and um and that's when the debate that we would recognize now well the debate changes in the 70s um and and this is what that chapter looks at and it it really looks at it um i i don't do a, a really detailed analysis of you know this proposed bill did this, this proposed bill yeah. did that. I look at more popular perception of this debate and, and in the pages of these magazines, when hunters say, we as hunters have a stake in this question, where do we fall? Um, on what side are we? Um, that The answer to that is, is in this sort of constant uh, negotiation through the 70s. And... Um, you know the and, and and this conversation is also unfolding in relation to questions about environmental protection. Really? Um, yeah. And well, I mean, by the '80s, you see guys writing into these magazines saying, and and this is this will sound familiar to a lot of your listeners today. You know, we we vote Democratic and we lose our guns to hunt with, or we vote Republican and we lose our lands to hunt on. Dude, this I always is, say the same thing. This is something. This is something that that you. you know, I mean, there's a there's a letter to the editor um, that that says that exact uh, that has that exact phrase in it from uh, I think it's 1980 or 1984. I think it's probably the, the, in 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 the lead up to the 84 election. Yeah. Um, after the initial sagebrush rebellion has fizzled out, um, but but this is one of sort of my my uh, the central assumptions of this project is that. It's very hard for people to to think about one question at a time, right? As we as as sort of political animals, you know, all of these things are constantly uh, in flux in relation to one another, and so political so, behavior isn't just you're not presented with sort of an ideal ticket, yeah. um, and these tickets change over time, and and as a result, you know, people have to ask themselves questions: What do I believe in at this moment? Where do my loyalties lie, et cetera, et cetera? And so that chapter three looks at the emergence of the modern Second Amendment debate, how it changes in the 70s, and and ultimately how sportsmen react to this um, new point of fracture in American political life. And how did they react? Um, I think without <laughs> with without uh, getting too uh, detailed here, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it was far more common to see sportsmen say. Uh, we occupy sort of a, a, a position of influence in this debate because we have a legitimate purpose. Um, and these are the words that they're using. They're not mine, but we have a legitimate purpose for these firearms. Yeah. And so we should, 
use our position of influence um, in order to come up with reasonable solutions. Um, and it's in the late 1960s and early 1970s, you see sort of the, the larger, uh, and, and there's obviously exceptions to this. It's, it's very much in debate, but there's, there's a, a large element calling for a position of moderation on these issues. The debate becomes much more polarized in the mid-70s, um, 1974, 1975 in particular. Um, and there are some, you know, there are, there are a number of other developments, but increasingly the position of sort of um, uncompromising hardline opposition to new firearm regulation becomes a more popular opinion as expressed in these magazines. Well, there had to be new firearms like when i look at firearm issues now it so much has to do with you don't hear the word very often but a lot of it has to do with technology did you know rocket money can cancel a subscription for you they'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you i can see my subscriptions in one place and if i see something i don't want rocket money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater i want to tell you about an american-made success story and black buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches black buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use black buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for black buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love mint straight and wintergreen all proudly made right here in the usa tell them chili the reason i like black buffalo pouches is one they're very discreet and what i mean by that is i can throw one in and almost forget it's there and i prefer the mint pouches so if you're 21 or older consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more you can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state. Of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world renowned knives. Josh has been making knives 
for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. We're always grappling with, when I say us, the American public, whatever side of this issue you're on, we're always grappling with, well, what are we going to do about what you might consider to be emerging technologies? Right. You know? Right. Um, availability on the marketplace of things that weren't available on the marketplace before. So is what you're talking about, was that driven by availability of new weapons classes? Or was it just like... Well, the, the, in, the, in the mid-1970s, the concern uh, is pistols that are called, quote-unquote, Saturday Night Specials. Oh, right? okay. And I it's, and the debate, Just stuff you don't even think about now. The debate sort of echoes what you hear uh, about, quote-unquote, assault rifles today, mm-hmm. right? People are arguing this is an arbitrary categorization that you know, one a gun of another type could do could be equally as harmful or injurious, whatever. Yeah, yeah um, I wasn't thinking the, about that. Like the, just like snub nose pistols. Yeah, or, yeah, but yeah. it's but it's a big. I mean, and and you know, when you think about it, uh, it's actually a pretty um, it's a pretty mainstream debate. I mean, there's a there's a cover of Field and Stream uh, called Saturday Night. The, the title of the the feature piece is Saturday Night Special: The Real Issue. And it's got this big smoking handgun on the cover. It's this illustration, and and the um, the author of the piece, Bob Bob Brister, I believe, is the author of the piece. He essentially writes, um, "We have no use for these, and as gun owners, we shouldn't be lumped in with, um, you know, street thugs and this and that and these criminals." And, wh- and that why? was the, that was the editorial stance yeah, of the magazine. So there at the time. was a big blowback to that. Oh yeah, and 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 this is part of what I look at is the the politics of, you know, there's this larger sp- suspicion at the time too. Um, C- CBS uh, owns Field and Stream, and CBS puts out at the time at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they put out um, some really sort of nasty anti-hunting hit pieces as documentaries on TV. The Guns of Autumn is one, um, and. And so readers, there, there are a lot of letters to the editor. And in, I, I also looked at the personal papers of writers and editors for these magazines. And you'll see that they're getting mail saying, are you guys in control of your magazine or is, is it the, the, the guys up at CBS? Oh, yeah. um, and so there's the, and so, so Field and Stream has to sort of uh, steal its resolve essentially and, and really come out as, you know, we are on, the sportsman side in this one and, and they adopt a more hardline position editorially. Is that right? Oh yeah. And, and th- I mean, there's, a, this is, this is at the time when suspicion of the media, um, becomes more, uh, popular. 
uh, in American life. You're familiar with the story of Jim Zumbo. Oh yeah. 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 No, and it's like very, very, very similar. Exactly. It's yeah. very similar to that. It's very similar to that. And so this is what oh, I'm not familiar. Okay. You're not? No. So, oh my God. I mean, it's such a Andy. No, not, not <laughs> you know the name of Jim Zumbo. Sure. Okay. Venerable, long time hunt, done a lot for hunting, long time gun rider, long time hunting rider. He, right when blogging kind of started, he had done a blog entry where he had come from, he was blogging, I believe from Wyoming, had been out hunting coyotes, and mentions in his blog, let me back up and say, this guy had been, I think he'd been a staffer at Outdoor Life for 25 years, was sponsored by all the big players, okay, had his own like jerky, his own everything, right, I mean, he was like the name. He's like the Bill Dance of hunting. And shared with his blog readers his opinion that, uh, or he relates a story how he was hunting coyotes with some guys who were telling him how guys have started hunting coyotes with ARs. And he says, hunters have no business using these terrorist guns. I say ban them from the woods right now. Now, immediately, I mean, his show, all the sponsorships, his position at the May, like everything was immediately stripped through public outrage. And he later attempted a redact, like, how does he say that word? Redact? Redacted. He later tried to redact, and he said that he had been out in the wind all day, and had it had been a long day and was very tired and didn't mean what he said and that didn't work um and later he went through a he went through a very public sort of he like enlisted himself sort of in a re-education camp you know um in, in a very public way and went hunting with the guns that he had said he was opposed to and did a, did a lot of steps to try to, you know, recuperate. And it was like, everything about it was sad. Everything about it was sad. Um, clearly, you know, it was kind of, in one way, it was kind of the beginning of, uh, of just like that. Like, here's a guy who'd always gone through like an editorial process, right? And it always... You know, you write something, you write another draft, right? And that kind of stuff like gives you time to sort of like filter out like what you're thinking and what you're saying, you know, like what do you really believe? Like I'll get like everyone has written a really nasty email at 11 at night, right? To And then if you have the wherewithal to not hit send at eight in the morning, you'd be like, well, you know, I'm not going to quite put it that way. I'm going to put it a different way. But he, he didn't. He just, he just put this out there. Like, ban them, you know? And, and people took him very literally. Like, so it was never really clear, like, what he... I mean, it was clear. Like, he said what he said, right? But you don't know, like, had he gone through his normal thinking on it, you know, and talked to his buddies, right? And his buddies, he said, well, you know, think about it this way, Jim. You're not looking at it this way or whatever. And, and you think about the ramifications of what you're saying. And he, but it was just, like, it was, it, was, it was just painful. I mean, this guy had really in many ways devoted his life to um, the promotion of hunting, you know. 
and and and, and was just a evi- I mean just eviscerated and just like people who never heard of Jim Zumbo on whatever morning that was on Tuesday were feigning just the biggest disappointment. You know what I mean? It was like it was quick. He became famous in a crowd that he'd never been famous with. You know. Um, it was, it was it was that was sad. It was sad watching him have to sort of like do. I always thought of when the communists like rolled into Saigon and put millions of people in re-education camps. It was like it was like him having to go to re-education camp because he's just like an like an old guy. And then out of that came the term like a fud, right? A fud. Have you? I don't know. A fud is a dude. I get. I've been accused of being a fud. A fud is a guy who looks at firearm issues through the lens of a hunter. Yeah. Because like Elmer Fudd, I guess he's got a shitty gun. I don't know. So I'd be <laughs> like, you're like a fud if you view because in yeah. all honesty, the Second Amendment has no mention of hunting. Like I'll always have people say like, oh yeah, well you should be able to have guns because you hunt. Right. I'm like, wow. You know. You know, in some respect, maybe I'm glad you feel that way because at least you allow that there is a reason to have guns. Like in yeah. your mind, like it's not like a dead end deal, but. The framers of the Constitution, the Second Amendment, were not thinking about a guy's right to go out and shoot squirrels. Right. It like, wasn't what they were trying to protect. If it was, they would have said something like that. It was not on their mind. So that's not like a plausible argument. But it was, the whole thing was sad. The whole thing was sad. Read up on Jim. I wrote a thing in Salon about Jim Zumbo. Um, when it was just like, I just wish he had sat on what he said and thought about it for a couple of days. Because I feel, having never met the guy, um, I feel that he would have, like, whatever. A couple days later, he'd have been like, well, you know, I don't like it. Like, there's, what, like, let's think about the message we're sending. He would have, like, he wouldn't have went out and said, like, let's ban him now. I think it was just, I don't think it's what he would have, I don't think it's what he meant. Or I don't think it's what he would have said had he thought about it longer. And I think that he got so just like, it was just watching like a nice old man just get beat to death on the curb. But a lot of people look at it like a great victory. Great victory. And it kind of sent a message like, don't mess with us. You know, and, and I think that, that, you know, the message resonated. But anyhow, it's just funny. Like when you talk about that oh, story, yeah. it, it, it's like you, that story plays out now and then. Yeah, I mean, know? a lot of what I see in these magazines 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, they they echo events and developments that I remember from my own time yeah. in, my, in my lifetime reading these mag as a reader, right? And as a researcher. So that was really interesting to see. I mean, the blowback from that wasn't, you know, it wasn't this swift. And I think technology tightens that oh, feedback dude, was, loop. People right? were just and, falling in yeah. love. People were falling in love with the web, man. But you absolutely get, uh, you know, you absolutely would see letters to the editor from from the mid 1970s saying, "Who's in control of of the editorial position of this magazine? Is it you guys, um, or yeah. can we trust you, or is CBS dictating the content here?" Did another editor recently publish a anti gun? Letter to the editor and lost his job? I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't remember where. Yeah. I think he published. Just telling you listeners, I, I could be messing this up. I don't think I am. If I'm, if I'm messing it up, I'm not messing up the main gist. I'm messing up a detail. A, an editor, I believe, published 
a anti-gun, like a, a gun editor at a gun magazine, published an anti-gun letter to the editor and was and lost his lost the position. Uh. Which is like which which is weirder than the Zumbo thing. Weirder because it's sort of like uh you know, it was almost like he was sort of using the magazine as sort of like a place for debate in a place that where debate wasn't welcome. And it is. It's like, you know, it, it's, that's a tricky thing. I would never do like an episode of my show where I would never be like, <laughs> uh, this week, a meat eater, we're not going hunting. Right. We're going to an anti-hunting convention. Right. You know what I mean? It would be like, uh, it'd be weird. Well, that's, I mean, what's funny though, and this is one of the larger takeaways from the project that I see over in terms of measuring sort of the larger change over time is that hunting's public culture, I feel... In the 1950s and 1960s, before you have these these uh, larger public challenges to hunting, it's a it's a it's a public culture that's much more open to debate. I mean, in, in outdoor life publishes in, in uh, oh 54 maybe um, or maybe this is 48. They publish an article called "Why I Gave Up Hunting," and they say this guy makes it. You know, we're not, we're not saying we're on board with this. But he he makes a, a compelling case, and we thought that this voice should be heard. Had he seen something he didn't want to see? Um, I mean, he he basically just described this as a he re, he sort of woke up one day. The, the the author of the piece, I'm not sure I'm going to remember his the author's name, but basically says I woke up one day and sort of realized that um what I was doing uh, was sort of indulging a, a more primitive. Uh, side of me that that, that I, right? I, yeah yeah and and they publish it right and and you can't imagine that you being could get published that story today. you could get it published but it wouldn't be published in field and stream or outdoor life yeah right right exactly <laughs> and so the I mean and and you can sort of be uh, be skeptical and say they're just you know publishing that piece they're fanning the flames and sort of you know drawing lines in the sand but I really do you know you look at there there's debate about the morality of hunting in the 40s and 50s and early 60s before the anti-hunting movement really gains uh, traction. But the debate is much more, um, uh, I don't know what the right word to use. I mean, it, there, there's a spirit of sort of honest consideration of other viewpoints yeah. that, that you don't see as much in contemporary culture. Well, I would argue that I'm gonna say we when I mean like the 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 hunting the, like the hunting community who who feels the compulsion to engage in the debate about hunting, right? A lot of people just hunt, right? Right. Like my brothers, they just yeah, hunt. Yeah, I mean, my brothers, yeah. they hunt. When you talk they about, hunt, yeah. they don't like yeah. they don't. You know, it's just not what they're doing right. They're not like sitting talking to someone about it right now. They hunt all the damn time, but they're talking about something else, right? So, anyways, those of us who you're right grapple with this stuff verbally with other people. Um, we're not like talking right now, the broader hunting community isn't talking right now about like so much like to hunt or not to hunt, but we are having very spirited, very divisive debates about high fence, right? Yeah. About long range shooting, long range technologies. Yeah. Um, the drone thing I thought was going to become big, but so many states it's, are getting out ahead of it so quickly that it might not become an issue. Laser range finders, right? Souped up compound bows. It's like, we're always sort of, um, there is still that debate because I can't think of a hunting writer or a, or a shooting magazine editor who hasn't weighed in on what's too far of a shot. But I think too, that there's another side to these conversations. There's a, there's a very vocal element of the hunting public today that says hunters shouldn't 
uh, be criticizing other hunters. Yeah, right. I get and it that, all the time, man. And that I think that's a product of this 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 cultural shift that that I track in the in the, in the dissertation of the 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 seven sixties seventies, primarily the seventies is sort of my big pivotal decade. But I think this, you know, us hunters have our backs to the wall. We don't need to be debating the ethics of what yeah. the guy next to you is doing, and and I think that is an unhealthy. I think that's that's yeah. Well, if that guy's an, pulling an the plug, if that guy's pulling right. the plug on the boat, yeah, like well, no, we're all in this boat together. But right. yeah, but that some bitch just cut a hole through the bottom of <laughs> yeah. it. And, and yeah. there's there's all kinds. I, I want to get on chapter four, yeah. but chapter finish, four. like if you got any concluding thoughts about three, lay it on. Uh, I, no. I want to make sure to cover your whole deal. All right, yeah. No, chapter four. Chapter four was the one I was going to begin with because chapter four tracks the changing culture of wild game consumption from 1945 to 1990 and that's pretty interesting and the way in which the changing uh, sort of sort of how the changing ways in which hunters use the meat that they that they kill that they harvest whatever um the ch- how that changes how they imagine what they're doing right? yeah, yeah, yeah. so if you can't fill the freezer for the winter to feed your family all year because you don't own a freezer because it's 1945, 1946. <laughs> what are you doing, right? The ice um, box. And yeah, and, and I mean, r- refrigerators, refrigerators are far more widespread in the immediate post-war period, but freezer ownership is, is, doesn't really take off until the mid-60s. Um, God, I never thought about that. I mean, you know what occurred to me recently that's similar to that? Yeah, yeah. Daniel Boone, okay, on up Jim Bridger, Jed Smith, they did all that shit without flashlights, man. <laughs> when it got dark, it was dark. Yeah. Yeah. You could do some shit with a candle or a fire, but they did it without flashlights. Now, you go out and spend a couple weeks in the woods with no flashlight. And I'm not talking about Alaska in July. Right. But like, spend a couple weeks and realize how much stuff you get done under artificial illumination. Yeah. Man. And how much like really important stuff happens under artificial <laughs> illumination. Imagine like, it's like one day I was occurring to me like, wow, man, when it got dark, it was dark. Yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, no, no refrigerator. Like what were they, what did they, what well, did they say when they had no fridge or no well, freezer? Well, it's hard to, I mean, it's, it's hard to generalize. Right. But one of the things that you, so, so what, what struck, and this wasn't initially a chapter in the project, but as I'm reading through these magazines, I, and, and especially local newspaper columns, you kept, I kept running into these anecdotes about, uh, uh, you know, people only eat things they shoot because they want an excuse to shoot another, something like that. Yeah. Whereas I think that the, the ethics, Which people still say that. Well, yeah, but I think that the, the, the and the, obviously there are exceptions, but I think that, for the most part, um, what what I saw over the several decade long period is a changing, uh, a much more widespread adoption of the ethics of consuming what you kill, right? Um, and obviously, people have consumed what they kill since the dawn of time, right? But there's certain. It's why people got into hunting, you know. It's, yeah, it is right. <laughs> but but if you look at like the, the late 1940s and early 1950s, um, I mean, one of the things that I one of the things that I'd never really thought about before I got into the project is um, hunting became much more popular in the immediate post-war decade. We, we often think about hunting as sort of this declension, you know, at one point in history, all people hunted to, to, to live and that number has just been steadily declining. But hunting 
um, sort of like religiosity. There were moments of revival, right? Oh yeah, it and got so, huge, man. Yeah. yeah, this whole generation. Like that's generation when my dad started. My yeah. dad started getting serious about big game hunting immediately after World War II, and he's like, there was a lot of guys around mm-hmm. who were used to traveling around, used to hanging out with other guys, having a good time. They were stir crazy. Right. Like they didn't want to get into the thing. The Hell's Angels came out at the same yeah. time. My dad like cruised around mm-hmm. with buddies of his and they hunted because they were out of their mind. I mean it's a it's a phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's it's a it's a post war phenomenon. So in nineteen forty, there's like seven million something hunting licenses sold. And by nineteen fifty it's like fourteen million. It's it it nearly doubles in a But think how old those guys were too. Right. It's like now the average hunter is what, like in his late forties or fifties or something like that? I mean those guys are twenty one, twenty two yeah. years old. And so and, and it's funny that I mean the, the way that you phrase that, there's a an editorial in outdoor life before the end of the war and and the I I'm I, the author is escaping me at the moment, but he writes, You can't introduce millions of young men to the joys of firearms and living in the woods and not expect and expect them to just give it up you know, at, at the drop yeah. of a hat, right? I remember a neighbor down the road of ours who was a pilot, like flew a plane in World War II. And he later talked about getting home from World War II and, and asked him kind of like the things he did for a while. And he said, I enrolled, uh, like he had the GI Bill. I enrolled in school, sat there for a couple of days and just realized after what I just did for two years, you've got to be kidding me. That I'm gonna sit in this chair. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, there's just no way. <laughs> and and so this is, I mean, it's it's a new passion for a lot of a lot of young men in this period. And if you think about the numbers of wildlife that existed in the 1930s, uh, or uh, you know, prior to Pittman Robertson, prior to this sort of rebounding of all these wild game populations, you think about how that changed um, sort of the the culture of hunting, right? If there's if there aren't any deer in your backyard to shoot. Sort of what it means to to drive to the North Woods, get your deer, yeah. and come back home. You're not taking, you know, your little kid out on the weekend and going hunting with them, right? It's it's your your war buddies. You're taking yeah, you get off. your red and black checkered outfit right. on and go exactly. over to the North Woods, man. But but what come you know with the novelty of this behavior for a lot of these guys, um, there are some complications. A- rates of accidental shooting skyrocket in the late 1940s and early 1950s. That's when my dad got shot. Oh yeah. Yeah hunting accident yeah i mean this is this is a huge this sports illustrated i think in like the 1951 or 1952 predicted that more hunters would get shot that year than like moose bighorn wild goat and they list you know basically everything other than deer they said more you know more american men are going to get shot in this hunting season than all of these species of big game combined my old man loved the irony of the fact that he had was on the anzio beachhead <laughs> invasion uh-huh. okay Fought all through the Italian peninsula, marched all the way to France, and was injured, but never by a bullet, never scratched by a bullet, and came home, and they were hunting rabbits, and a guy shot him in the foot with a 12-gauge shotgun at point-blank range. You know? Yeah. It's just like, he's like, how could that be? I mean, it was a common experience, relatively speaking. But get, but, but get me into the like. So, but, so, but I, so okay, how were they dealing? What, what before when these guys all start hunting deer? They don't have freezers. They're not like seasoned woodsmen. Yeah, who know how to smoke hams and know how to do like primitive old school meat preservation techniques. What you just get a deer and party with it and eat it in a week? Well, that's that's. I mean, I found a lot of references to guys running around town trying to hand meat off to neighbors and okay. and, and this and that, right? Trying to get rid of the thing before it's spoiled. Um, and there, you know, you could rent 
freezer space. Um, and sportsmen were earlier adopters of this technology, the freezers, than, than other Americans. And, and freezer companies actually, you'll see these advertisements in the, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, when these freezer manufacturers are starting to really push this technology. They're saying, hey, imagine eating year-round what you kill this fall. Oh, they're right. Yeah, and there are actually laws on the books in the late 1940s. Um, you know, one of the ways in which some of the early uh, wildlife regulations prohibit or, or intended to curtail poaching was by um, criminalizing possession of wild game within X number of days after the end of the season. And in some states, I think it was like five or six states, when the season ended, you can't have any any wild game in your house. Is that right? Yeah. And so, and so there, because the assumption was, if you have it, you probably shot it last week. Just shot it, yeah. Um, You know, why would you? Why would you have a tenderloin from Whitetail you shot, you know, six months ago, something like that, as so many people do today? Um, But so, so in these magazines, if you look at these magazines in in the late 1940s, some of these editors are saying we need to we need to reinvent these laws because as more and more sportsmen buy freezers and have the means to preserve wild game year round, these laws are actually going to penalize law-abiding sportsmen. Or, or, or they're going to penalize sportsmen who want to conserve this this meat and use it to feed their family. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, another side story, or, or another sort of uh, thing that you'll see in these magazines again and again, and also in, in newspapers, um, these accounts, people sort of openly acknowledging that most... And you'll you'll see these words, and so it's not my sort of me poking at people in the past, but you'll see these words again and again. Most of the wild game in this country is wasted. You'll see that. I mean, you'll see it in anywhere from Ladies Home Journal yeah. to uh, to Field and Stream to Outdoor Life. It's sort of this open, ugly secret. Um, well, yeah, and it's not I'd so much a, of a secret. I, I wouldn't say most, right, but a yeah. hell of a lot of it is today. Well, yeah, I mean, and but I, I I think back then the difference is back then. The there wasn't a um, sort of the the ethical consideration of wasting what you kill wasn't nearly as prominent on the page gotcha. of these magazines, um, and that really is, be, is it because they didn't have an awareness of finiteness or or, or is it something different? Well, it's a point of concern, I think, for a lot of wildlife officials and administrators who are tasked with conserving this resource, and those are sort of the terms that they view it in. And so, in the 1960s, you see state fish and game. Uh, departments putting out cookbooks and putting out guides on how to, pr- and, and this is something that agricultural extension services throughout the country had been doing, yeah. you know, piecemeal, but it really takes off in the sixties, especially as freezers become more available. And then especially once hunting comes under um, pressure from anti-hunting activists who are saying, you're doing this, you know, to, 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 serve some kind of bloodlust or this or that, you know, it's a wasteful, destructive practice. Increasingly, um, hunters are defending their pastime by um, highlighting that they're using this as a means to feed their family. Um, And and there's a huge social scientific literature from the 1970s where there are public opinion polls of of the general public, not just hunters and anti-hunters, but of the non-hunting sort of disinterested public, right? And the approval figures of hunting are much, much higher, as they are today, uh, when you emphasize uh, the, the eating, the consumptive aspect of it, right? Yeah. Eating what you kill. Um, and so 
that in the seventies, this really takes off. And it also, I also tie it in or dovetail it with, um, the economic misfortune of a lot of, uh, the country during this period. Like if you think about Michigan, deindustrialization, economic stagnation, uh, you see in the sources, you'll see in magazine articles that, you know, verbatim deer hunting in the Northwoods this year took on a new, uh, a new level of significance as, right? as out of work. Yeah. As, as laid off auto workers are trying to figure out a way to, to provide for their families. You know, um, we had that a few years ago, mm-hmm. it was announced and, and to much fanfare that there had been a slight uptick in license sales. You know, people were very excited about it. And, um, many people interpreted those numbers and one interpretation you kept seeing again and again was it was contemporaneous with economic crash. And you had a lot of dudes who had a lot of time on their hands mm-hmm. and did a lot of hunting those couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, and the, the people that are, that really, uh, some of the, some of the people that were hit the hardest by, uh, the, the economic stagnation in the 1970s, um, were blue collar middle class breadwinners in you know the upper rust belt michigan you think about a strong deer hunting culture right and so in that context this behavior this practice takes on a new significance this is how and this is you'll see this again and again if you look at local newspapers like youngstown ohio places like that there's a story you know a local interest story come christmas time about an out of work uh out of work guy who went out and fed his family for the winter you know, with a deer or two. Fill the ovaries. And it becomes, yeah, and it becomes sort of this trope um, that yeah. you just don't really see. And and it's not to say that people didn't consume what they killed in the 40s and 50s, but it just takes, it resonates in new ways in the imagination in these other contexts. Yeah. Okay, um, hit me with chapter five. Chapter five. Chapter five. Where are we at with time, Yanni? Yeah. How long have we been talking? Probably overboard. We're getting there, but no, I think we can, we can, we can finish up chapter five. Chapter and, five and is quick. Give some final thoughts. Sure. Yeah. Chapter five, uh, chapter five looks at, um, the, uh, ways in which the hunting in American life is increasingly debated with rights-based claims, um, in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, you know, people claiming I have a right to hunt. Oh, um, okay. And 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 conversely, I also look at the politics of of tribal hunting and fishing rights because the two unfold simultaneously. Yeah. Um. And and I I really sort of tell the story of um. Obviously, people have claimed that their rights to hunt dating back, um. Much longer, right? Further back than than this period that I'm considering. But yeah, Daniel takes, Boone had no right to be doing what he was doing. Much well, what he was doing was on land claimed by the British crown and he was like trespassing not only on a Native American land, he was trespassing on the land claimed by another country. Yeah. So <laughs> so one of the interesting things that I discovered in my research was uh, this article from like a law review in the 1930s and this guy's making mention of the fact that Pen- Pennsylvania at the time of the Constitutional Convention had a pretty radical democratic, small d democratic political culture. Um, and... In Pennsylvania, I, I'm I'm 90% certain that it's Pennsylvania, and I'm also 90% certain that nobody else is going to call me out on this one. But I think Pennsylvania suggested incorporating into the Bill of Rights a right to hunt on all unoccupied lands 
within the new nation. Man. And it was jettisoned. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, um, that would have been nice. Yeah, so that was, so that was a... Uh, <laughs> Dude, I'd be hitting that, Yellowstone hard this fall, <laughs> man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this, this guy, like in the 1930s, apparently had dug up some old transcript of a... Of a the, the Philadelphia delegation or something like that when they're meeting to debate the, the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, anyway, um, so I look, at, I look at the ways in which, and, and part of it stems from the rise of new anti-hunting strategies like, um, uh, you know, folks showing up in the woods trying to disrupt hunts mm-hmm. and um, hunters making claims, I have a right to be here, this is illegal. Yeah, well, it? well now it's like a lot of states right. have ratified this hunter harassment laws. Yeah, this is the, yeah. sort of the origins of the modern debate over hunter harassment laws, yeah. which is what I look at. I have a right to hunt. I'm doing something lawful, authorized by the state, um, and and my rights are being infringed upon by it's an, these Yeah, folks. it's kind of an, you probably know better, but it's like an implied right. Be like, to say like, because you know, people are talking about the right to privacy, the constitution. Right. You know, th- there is no, it's an interpretation, right? There's no one, yeah. the constitution says, you have the right to privacy. Right. Which is like a thing where, like we accept that that's in, that that's implied the sort of idea that right to privacy. So when people talk about you have a right to hunt. It kind of winds up. It's like um, yeah, you have like an implied right. There's like a cult. There's like a hereditary cultural thing enabling you to hunt. Yeah. And then it's interesting to see like the hunter harassment stuff was almost kind of a step in the direction of saying like, well, at least have the right to hunt without you messing with me. Yeah, and and the debate over these hunter harassment laws centers around competing rights claims because the anti-hunting activists, advocates, whatever you want to call them, um, argue that these laws are infringing my right to the protest hell. or to free speech or whatever yeah, you yeah. want to call it, right? And so so ultimately, um, sort of the uh, the stakes of this hunting and anti-hunting debate are amplified by the arena in which it's taking place or, or the, the language in which it's taking place of rights claims, rights-based claims, which are pretty powerful claims in American political culture, especially in the second half of the 20th century, following all of the uh, big so, you know, social movements, the civil rights movement of, of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, whatever. So, um, so the fact that this is a language that's being adopted and appropriated in order to uh, you know, engage in this contest over the, the, the ethics of hunting, the morality yeah. of hunting, heightens heightens the sort of emotional stakes that people have in it. Um, and so that's, that's that chapter. Um, and then the, the epilogue, the epilogue looks at, and this just really briefly um, looks at this debate over public lands that, you know, is around the late 19th century, early 20th century, rears its head again in the eighties and seems to be rearing its head again. Oh um, my God. I hope just like, and so, yeah, so that that chapter sort of sketches out the role that the hunting public has played in this debate, and uh, as it's a pretty powerful role. Dude, man, I hope that in twenty years you can write another dissertation about how this whole anti-public <laughs> land thing got just squashed by hunters in the 2016-2015 era. Well, if I'm writing another dissertation in twenty years, I've You're made screwed. a series of terrible <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> oh, which leads me to the last thing I wanted to ask you. This isn't my concluding thought. Uh, what do you got to do now? You gotta get the thing published in like a major. Uh, yeah, so I mean, what do you got to do? I'm sort of catching my breath, and uh, it was like I said, it was kind of a sprint to the finish there to get to get wrapped up, and uh, I'm sort of thinking about publication options and and uh, thinking about publishers and and 
like academic a, type publishers. Well, that I think there's an I think there's a popular audience for it. So at the moment, I submit I'd it. Say so. Yeah. But no, but no, I'm not saying it needs to be academic. I mean, to make it be a dissertation. Once, like, let's once, say Scribner publishes it. Yeah. Does that still count? Oh, as, yeah. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't know once, if it had yeah. to be like, it no. had to go through the academic <laughs> review process. Scribner publishes it, yeah. Or, but it or, doesn't have to go, so it doesn't have to go through like the peer review process. No, the, so, so what happens is after you write the dissertation, you submit it to a committee of examiners and they read it and they're ultimately the arbiters of whether or not this constitutes a, an original uh, valuable uh, contribution to the literature. And so Dan was as my advisor was the head of that committee and then I had five other uh, professors of history and a professor of environmental studies who read the thing and we sat down and, and you defend it's a defense so they sit down and ask you why did you do it this way you know what are you missing here it's as I gotcha. read this I would have done this this way and you you answer and address their concerns as best you can and then you're asked to leave the room and they ultimately come back and say you either passed it or you didn't so and what happened well, I passed. That's why I'm sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now that you've done that, yeah. you can take any publication venue you want. Yeah, it's mine. Um, it it you submit it to a, an online database. Okay. But you can put a hold on it for several years as you're working out how exactly you want to publish it. Gotcha. Um, and and ideally, you publish it with the the a press. That'll give you the widest audience possible. Yeah, of course, yeah. So you don't want to send it to someone. Dude, I don't even want you to kind of think I was suggesting <laughs> that it wasn't yeah. for that. Sure, I just sure. thought that because you're involved in this process that you have to stay within that world. No, no. Once you, once so you, people once will you publish a dissertation as a popular book. Typically, typically not because most dissertations are written in a... Uh, yeah, like heavily footnoted yeah, in a way that's yeah, never they're, gonna. They're not written in a, in a in a a literary style that people are gonna. They're not accessible because yeah. they're written for an academic audience to sort of show your chops, test your you know show show your metal to an academic audience. But you'd so, have to go in and douche it up, right, and take out all like de footnote it and, and um, citations and present all that in a different way. Yeah, I mean it's it's up to the publisher, it's up to the press how they how they want to do it. I mean i I wrote it in such a way that. I mean, a lot of people, they write 1,000-page dissertations and they have to chop it down to like a 200-page book manuscript. Yeah, that's, that's and, what I'm wondering. Uh, yeah. And so I approached it. Uh, I tried to save myself some work on the back end by by keeping it as tight as I could uh, as I wrote it. So so my concluding thought is, yeah, I don't want to ask you, like you, there's, a lot, there's a lot of unknowns. My concluding thought is I, I, I hope that this, that this work sees the, that this work, becomes available for people to look at. Yeah. And I don't mean like them going in, you know, like I hope it's like published. Right? Yeah, no, that's, that's where they're not going on a J store trying to no, buy, like no. trying to buy your dissertation for 20 bucks. Or yeah, something, no, you know? that's, that's the, uh, that's the hope. That's the goal. Um, and yeah, I finished, I just finished about a month or so ago and I got a lot of balls in the air right now. And are you going to go work at a university? Um, at the moment I'm teaching online and, and, uh, for a university and, um, sort of figuring out the next step. I mean, I'm interested in teaching. I love teaching. Um, I'm not sure if I want to necessarily go through the academic tenure track job market. Um, I'm, I'm interested in also finding employment and conservation and sort of working towards bringing <laughs> groups together, resolving some of the issues that have tracked 
as they emerged in the 1970s, 1960s, 1970s. So, well, there you have it, ladies and really gentlemen. Know, Call yeah. this man up and give him a job. How, <laughs> yeah. much, how much money do you need to make? No, I'm joking. Oh, yeah. I just came <laughs> off a uh, salary as a teaching assistant. So anything, anything Listen, you're going like to get riches. this guy yeah. cheap. Anything yeah. sounds good to this guy. Yeah. Yanni, you got any concluding thoughts? Too many, really, for the time I have. Um, congratulations, first off, for getting that done. Thank you. It's quite the project. That's got to feel good, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> quite the dragon to slay, as you like to say. Um, yeah, man. I hope that your work opens uh, opens up some discussion. I think it's important to know for everybody. It's important to know your history and where you come from, and not only your family history, but now us as hunters and some interesting stuff that you've you know looked at and shared. So, yeah, open. Hopefully, it opens up discussion. Yeah. Everybody out there, you can label me as a tree hugger, environmentalist that likes to shoot stuff. That's, <laughs> that's my concluding thought. Like shoot trees. And you didn't say a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, well, this is your first. This is the first time you ever sat in on one of these conversations. Yeah, yeah, and I thanks uh, thanks for the opportunity to let me sit in. It's uh, interesting stuff. I learned quite a bit. Do you have any concluding thoughts? Well, you're it, probably it, thinking about that big lingcod you got to flay. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Andy's got a cooler with two lingcod on ice that won't fit in the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> well, like 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 Randall, I came from a, a non-hunting family, so it, this is all good knowledge. You know, it's it's stuff that I didn't grow up thinking about so it's this is this is good to hear and yeah congratulations on getting through it and thank you sounds like a pretty pretty interesting piece i can't tell if you're allowed to have concluding thoughts or not what do you think does <laughs> randall get concluding thoughts yeah i think so oh, they right, don't want your, to hear me they don't want no, to what's your randall? concluding thought it's oh. just it's just a little tradition of having concluding thoughts i'm just uh just happy and honored to be here. It's no, been a don't good time. come on, dude. Don't start. Don't give me the old. All right. Look. Well, then, uh, then you know, visit your local bookseller in about two years. Once we get this thing on the uh, on the shelf and pick it up, and you know, we'll get it put up on. Uh, we'll get it put up when your book comes out. We'll get it put up on our our website. And Giannis, maybe we'll get a deal where you buy a hundred T-shirts, you get a copy for free. There you go. <laughs> How about a hundred books and get a T-shirt for free? Slumming a package. <laughs> All right. Um, man, I just, you know, now I feel guilty to the view, to the listeners that we've been discussing and like, cause usually you, a book will get published and you go and do, you talk about it, you know? Yeah. Cause now I'm like, stay tuned. Cause someday you'll be able to read this book. <laughs> when do you think it'll be available? Uh, you know, it's, he has no it's, way it's, knows. it's hard no to way. say. Yeah, it's hard to say. Once you start setting out queries to presses, it's you never know when what the timeline is. So we'll see. Yeah, but well, we got the basic idea. It was fascinating, man. Thank you. I, I'm glad. I, I'm glad you're able. To, I'm glad you're able to come and talk about this. I mean, definitely stuff I never thought about. And some stuff I had thought about, but I thought about it wrong. Yeah, I mean, it was a different. Uh, you know, when I set out to write the thing, I thought I was going to tell one story and I realized that there are so many more stories out there. And I guess, you know, if you're interested in this, if the listeners are interested in this stuff, Outdoor Life just recently digitized uh, their whole uh, back catalog to like 1887, 88, something like that. Is that so right? You can, you can buy a monthly, yeah. And so this saved me. Because prior to that, I was carrying home these huge bound volumes that weighed like 20 pounds a piece, and it was like 10 issues of, of Outdoor Life. And I was just hauling them back from the library in my backpack. 
And then, you know, in January, I'm, I'm cranking through this thing and you can go online now and get a subscription. It's like, it's like five bucks a month or something. Is that right? And they have full page scans. So you can go, you can look at the advertisements, all that stuff. And then Field and Stream too is available on Google Books digitally from like 1968 to the early 2000s. So if, you know, if, if you want yeah, to go so back you listeners and, can go out and write your yeah, own damn dissertation. Yeah, yeah, go out and... <laughs> I'd be curious to have someone go do a dissertation on uh, the changing nature of chewing tobacco ads yeah. in Field and Stream and Outdoor Life. Oh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a rich history there. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. Um, we'll keep making them. Keep listening. Take care. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.